God, your goodness, your truth, your beauty are all magnificent in their perfections. O Lord, you are merciful and kind, slow to anger and long-suffering. O, but God, we are dust, we are creatures, indeed sinful creatures, dust mingled with sin. O God, have mercy upon us according to your promises, according to your good word, no, Lord, not according to what we have done, nor what we have deserved, but according to the deserts of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we confess our sins to you and ask you to forgive us, wash us in the blood of your blessed Son. Pour down your Holy Spirit upon us, Lord. Create in us a right heart and renew within us a right spirit. We ask, O oh God, that you would be merciful to your church, that you would protect her and defend her, that you, O oh Lord, would rise up and you would drive away all causes of sin. That, O oh God, you would sanctify us, your people, that you would grow us in holiness and the knowledge of the truth. That by faith, O oh Father, we would draw near to you, even as you draw near to us. O oh Father, as we turn to your word this morning, your infinite word, your perfect and infallible word, we ask for your blessing upon it. We ask, O oh God, that you would bless this preacher, that you would purify the mouth of your servant, that you, O oh Lord, would give us ears to hear, and that hearing we might believe, and that believing we might be saved. We ask all these things, Lord, to your glory, in the name of your Son, and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Would you please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 12. We will be looking at verse 32 this morning. Luke Chapter 12, verse 32. Hear now the word of God Almighty. And the Lord Jesus said, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen? In these words of the Lord Jesus we see that it is the will of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that you cease from sinful fearing. It is the will of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that you cease from sinful fearing. We're going to look at this text in three simple points this morning. First, there will be a prohibition. That prohibition will be followed by a tender appellation. And the tender appellation will be followed by three very good reasons. Let's look first at the Lord Jesus' prohibition. He says, fear not. This is a prohibition. You know what a prohibition is. A prohibition is like a requirement. Instead of giving you something that you must do, it is something that you must not do. Jesus here is prohibiting fear. In this case, the action which Christ forbids is as if he had said, stop stealing or stop lying, but stop fearing. Oftentimes, Christians are surprised to learn that God commands your feelings, but he does. Here, the Lord Jesus commands your very feelings. 
It is our Savior's express desire, according to the word of God, that his saints would cease from fear. Now, what is fear? From what is it that the Lord Jesus Christ wants us to cease? Fear is an unpleasant feeling caused by the expectation of evil or the apprehension of some impending danger. There are, of course, degrees of fear. We have things like worry and maybe anxiety and then distress, panic, dread, all the way up to sheer terror. Now, of course, you understand that fear is a natural passion. We are creatures, and it is part of being a creature that we are subject to fear. And in some instances, fear is right and good. For instance, it is right that a man fears poverty and starvation, and that motivates him to work. That is an appropriate fear for a creature. Let me make a side note here on fear. For while the Lord Jesus prohibits fear from us, I have observed in our culture sometimes that the enemies of Jesus Christ will use this against Christians and tell you that you ought not to be fearful of some evil. I'll give you an example. You have perhaps heard of homophobia. Now in English, a phobia is an irrational fear of something. Beloved, we do not irrationally fear homosexuality. We might be repulsed by it. We might be opposed to it. We might abominate it, even as the Lord God does. But we are not irrationally afraid of it. We are rightly concerned about its effects upon our churches and our culture, our children and our grandchildren. But we are not irrationally fearful. Therefore, do not fall for that trick. So while the Lord Jesus says, fear not, we must understand the fear which he is speaking of. Now, fear becomes to us a sin when it is unfounded, when there is no cause for fear. Fear becomes a sin to us when it is overwhelming, when it is obsessive, unceasing. Fear is a sin when it prevents us from doing our duty. I want you to think about the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you suppose that there was nothing terrifying in the cross? He had good reason. And you know this. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he sweat drops of blood. He was in such anguish in his soul. There were fearful circumstances. But he set his face like flint to go to that cross because he knew it was his Father's will for him. You see, in order to be brave, there must indeed be something of which you might be afraid. Bravery is not the absence of fear entirely. Bravery is looking at that fear and looking at your duty on the other side of that fear and pressing forward nonetheless. But when fear causes us to not do our God-given duties, then it is indeed sinful. When fear tempts us to commit other kinds of sin, it becomes itself an occasion for sin and therefore sinful. For example, we talked about the man who has a legitimate fear of poverty or starvation and therefore he is motivated to work. 
But if this man's fear of poverty is such that it keeps him up all night worrying, not praying, not asking God for help, but worrying, tossing and turning on his bed like a door on its hinges, being anxious, never resting, or if it motivates a man to neglect his family, to spend all of his waking hours and all of his intellectual energies and all of his emotional energies on his work, or if it tempts him to skip church or conduct business on the Lord's day or use the church for the expansion of his business, or if it would tempt him to steal or compromise his principles, those things would obviously be the sinful variety of fear. Now, because fear is based upon some future expectation, our fears can really be as varied as our expectations of the future. We can fear whatever we can imagine. And it's as infinite as our own runaway imaginations. If, however, we limit our causes of fear to those things which are real, possible, true, then there are certain limits. There is a finitude to the things that we can fear. Whatever you may fear, beloved, it will fit into one of two categories. It will either be God or something that God has made and is sovereign over. Because reality, that which exists, consists of only those two things. God and the things that God has made. Now you understand, and I barely need to explain, that God is the most serious threat to mankind. Indeed, the first recorded instance of fear in the Bible, who can tell me where that is? In Genesis chapter 3, was not Adam afraid of his God? And why was he afraid of his God? Because he sinned against him. I was naked and I was afraid. That is what we call a guilty fear. He was right to fear God because he had transgressed his covenant. He had broken his holy law. And he knew that he deserves God's judgment. There is a guilty fear. A fear that we have provoked God and made him our enemy. The U.S. Marines used to say that the Marines are the greatest friend you could have, but the worst enemy that you could have. Well, they might be close, but I can tell you this. God is indeed the greatest friend you can have and the worst enemy that you can have. This is that fearful expectation of judgment that Hebrews 10.27 talks about. However, what does Romans chapter 5 verse 1 say? Being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, since we have peace with God by believing in his Son, we need not have that guilty fear. We have what? Peace with God. Therefore, God cannot be our enemy. In order to be our enemy, he would need to be the enemy of his Son, Jesus Christ. And that, beloved, will not happen. Therefore, we need not fear God. However, even in Psalm 103, we read of fearing the Lord. So I must take a moment to clarify. There is a sense in which even the children of God ought to fear God. The fear of God is really a reverence of God. 
a respect for his person. Indeed, this is better described as a love of God, a childlike love for a father. This is the kind of fear that the Lord Jesus Christ had. You can read about that in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7. It is a childlike reverence for a father such that you would rather die than offend him or disappoint him. Because you love him and his love has been shed abroad in your heart and he has been so good to you. It is not his judgment you fear. It is your offending of him that you fear. Now hear this. If you fear God in this sense as a child to a father, then you need not fear him in that other sense of him doing harm to you, but rather know that you are at peace with him. Being reconciled to God, then we are delivered from that greatest possible danger. That's a lot off the table right there, isn't it? Just knowing that you need not fear God judging you. However, you know this, being friends of God does invite some other enemies for us, even those who hate God. Their arms are not long enough to reach God, therefore they attack God's people here on earth. Jesus warned you that men would hate you because of him. Yet, in this passage, Jesus also tells you it is his desire that you not fear those enemies. The Christian, every Christian, everyone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ can say this, The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do to me. Now some common fears, two very common fears to all of us creatures, are the fears of suffering and death. As creatures... As weak, we we naturally seek our comfort and we shrink back from death. Even Christians at times are anxious about death. But the Lord Jesus says this, Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Be thou faithful unto death and I will give thee a crown of life. Revelation chapter 2 verse 10. Oh, I am sure you can imagine many things to fear. There are probably things that you are fearing even now. Fearing, will this sermon ever end? Fear not, it will end. But as I said, our fears can be as many as our imaginations. Whatever it is you might be fearing, whatever it is that may be causing you anxiety, whatever it is, that discomforts you and disquiets you and turns your attention away from God. I want you to know that that is precisely what the Lord Jesus is talking about when he says, fear not. Nothing you can fear, nothing that exists, exists beyond God and the things that God has made. Therefore, Christian, you do well to remember this. Neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Beloved, if God is no longer your problem, you really have no problems. Now, Jesus knows your heart. He knows your circumstances. 
He knows that fear is a constant temptation. He also knows that fear is a stumbling block. It interrupts us in our way to holiness. He knows that fear is not becoming of the children of God. Let me give you some reasons why fear does not fit with the faithful. First of all, fear dishonors God by disregarding his goodness, his wisdom, his power, his trustworthiness. You see, our fear betrays our hearts. Without speaking, it says that we don't really believe God. It says that we aren't really trusting what he says. He will not keep us. He will not be good to us. He will not provide as he has promised. Therefore, fear dishonors God. Not only does fear dishonor God, but it distracts us from our upward calling in Christ. It keeps you fixed on earthly things. It keeps you fixed on the concerns of the day and not eternal life and the concerns of God. And even when the danger is real, when there are things to fear, I want you to think about this. Remember, we said fear is a feeling. Fear has no power to change your circumstances one iota. Fear is not going to help, is it? By being afraid of something, I can't fix it. Rather than being afraid of something, what I must do is go to the one who can fix it, even the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, fear does not have the power to change your fortunes, but it does have the power to make you unhappy, unhealthy, unproductive, unfaithful. Was it not fear that led St. Peter to deny the Lord Jesus Christ three times? And break his own heart. Now fear not only harms you. But it hurts your friends. Hear me on this. Fear is more contagious. Than any virus. Ever on the face of this earth. It spreads like wildfire. It's worse than pink eye. And this is why in Deuteronomy chapter 28. The rules For the military were this. Who is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go and return to his house. Lest the heart of his brethren faint in fear. Do you see that? God is saying, if you've got a coward, you've got someone who's fearful, don't send him into battle. Because his fear will infect the others and then they won't fight. So your fear, beloved has the danger of harming not only you, but your friends as well. And you've seen this in the church, how fear is contagious. Someone is panicking. Someone is not trusting the Lord. Others look at them and see a bad example. And then they begin to fear. Now, fear not only hurts your friends, but you know that fear helps your enemies. Your enemies are excited and emboldened by your fear. Wild animals, some way or another, according to their senses, can discern or detect fear in their prey. When we were kids, we always said that dogs or wild dogs or bears or other animals could smell fear. Well, I don't know whether it's their sense of smell or they're picking up on different cues, but the truth of the matter is predatory animals 
can sense fear. And when they do sense fear, they become emboldened. And the attack drive in them grows stronger. And that predatory instinct takes over. If, for example, you were to be attacked by some wild dog or a mountain lion or something like that, one of the worst things you could do would be to cower in fear or to run away because it will chase you down and attack. Let me ask you, what do you think your enemies? The devil. Who goes about like a roaring lion? What do you think he does when he sees your heart melting in fear? Is he not rather emboldened and encouraged to attack all the more, having found a weak spot, having seen a place where he can turn you out of the way? Have you seen a place where you can tear down the credibility of God and the hearts of your brothers and sisters? You see, fear is really not something beneficial to you, is it? The fear of which we are speaking, the the sinful kind of fear which Jesus forbids. And when Jesus forbids fear, he's not depriving you of some good thing. No, rather he is giving you a needful prohibition against a harmful vice from which you ought to be so pleased to get out from under. Fear is not good for you. It is not good for the name of God. It is not good for your friends, but it is good for your enemies. So then, that is the prohibition the Lord Jesus in no uncertain terms commands that we ought not to fear. Let us move to his tender appellation. The Lord Jesus sweetens and softens his hard prohibition by means of a tender appellation. Now, an appellation is a name or a title. In this case, Jesus refers to you, Christian, as his little flock. Fear not, little flock. This shows us the tenderness of the Lord Jesus Christ. He does not speak to you as strangers or as enemies, but he speaks to you as his own people for whom he has a very fond affection. Thus, we see that there is no gall or bitterness in his words, but rather he is giving us in this prohibition sweet words of life from a tender shepherd, indeed the great shepherd In calling you his little flock, the Lord Jesus shows that he himself is not ashamed to claim you as his very own flock, his own people. Jesus is the shepherd, and you all are his sheep, his little lambs. Indeed, in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 11, we read, He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arm, and he will carry them in his bosom, and shall gently lead those that are with young. That is the tenderness of the Lord Jesus Christ towards his sheep. With David, Christian, if you believe in the Lord Jesus, the chief shepherd of the sheep, you can say this along with David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, thou art with me. I will fear no evil. Do you doubt Jesus' concern for you? Jesus said the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Jesus was willing to spill his blood for you. What else do you need to be afraid of? Do not doubt his concern for you. 
His concern for you drove him to be crucified. The Lord Jesus said that he knows his sheep. The good shepherd knows his sheep. John 10, 14. He's aware of your needs. He knows what we need. He knows that we are weak. He knows that we are vulnerable. He knows that sheep are not naturally strong or wise. He knows the dangers you face. Both dangers from without and even dangers from within. The Lord Jesus knows you. As your shepherd, he has taken personal responsibility for your safety. Do you know in the ancient world, a a shepherd might be in charge of a set number of sheep, and there's usually many shepherds that that work for a larger gathering of sheep, a larger larger great shepherd. And, And each shepherd had a set number of sheep, and any shepherd who lost one of those sheep had to make up for it. He had to provide for the sheep that he lost. Jesus says he will not lose any of his sheep. He has taken personal responsibility for every lamb of his flock. Never forget this. Jesus has taken personal responsibility for your safety. And he says, fear not, little flock. Jesus knows that, comparatively speaking, we are few. We are not mighty by worldly standards. We are not great by worldly standards. But remember the tenderness of this appellation. Little flock. Who is the safest, most loved person in any household? Is it not the baby? Who is the most spoiled in your household? Is it not the littlest? Indeed, an infant is the safest, most secure, most cared for person in any household because they are the littlest. And Jesus calls you his little flock. You see, Jesus has a tenderness towards you and that tenderness implies his protection of you. He dotes on you because you are his little flock. In the remaining words of this passage, the Lord Jesus gives Three reasons to enforce this prohibition. So we saw the prohibition, fear not, and the appellation, you are his little flock. And I hope that you understand Jesus calls you his little flock in this occasion in order that you will understand his prohibition towards you is not harsh or unloving, but for your good. He says to you, I am your shepherd. Hear my words because they are for your good. We come now to three good reasons for this prohibition. He says, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. First of all, you ought not fear, because God is your father. God is your father. You are commanded not to fear. Not only do you have Christ as your shepherd, but you have God Almighty as your father. In the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord Jesus asked this, What man among you, who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? And the end explained to them, If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him?
You see, Jesus argued you from the lesser to the greater. Today on the calendar, we mark Father's Day. And I had a lovely time with my daughters yesterday. And I am a sinful man, an imperfect father. But, do you know, even as a sinful and imperfect father, I know how to give good gifts to my children. How much more does our perfect father in heaven know how to give good gifts to us, his children? You know, a father has the duty to provide for and to protect his children. God requires this of human fathers, doesn't he? Indeed, God threatens human fathers with punishment if they don't do this. If God proclaims himself your father, that means that by his own righteous standard, he has the duty to protect and provide for you. He has committed himself to that responsibility by calling himself your father. Why be afraid when we can ask our father in heaven for the things that we need? Beloved, if we had the vaguest sense if we had a true sense of what it means to have Almighty God as our Father, of what that really means for us, we would be so ashamed of even the smallest fear. We would hang our heads. There is a second reason here. First, it was God is our Father, therefore we ought not to fear. Secondly, you ought not to fear because of God's good will towards you. God's good will course you. Notice Jesus says here in verse 32, it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. This same verb of good pleasure is used in Luke chapter 3 verse 22. At this time the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form upon Jesus and a voice from heaven came and said this, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That's the same as our word good pleasure in this passage. What I want you to get is this. God's will to you, his disposition towards you, is the same as it was toward Jesus, his only begotten son. With Jesus, he was well pleased. With those who are in Christ, he is well pleased. It is his good pleasure to give you things. This makes perfect sense because God is your father. And you, believing in Jesus Christ and having been justified by faith, are adopted to become sons of God. And you are given the spirit of God by whom you cry, Abba, Father. And then you can know that with you, child of God, he is well pleased. God is well pleased with his son and he is well pleased with those whom he justifies and adopts as his sons. Moreover, it is God's own will to be good towards you. It's his own good pleasure. Know this about your father. When he does good things to you, he's acting out of his own good nature. He's not acting contrary to himself. That is God. He is good and he does good. You need not persuade him to do good to you. You need not trick him into doing good to you. You need not feel guilty when he does good to you. God is acting out of his own holy, righteous, good, and perfect nature according to his own holy will. 
when he does good to his people. Notice it is God's good pleasure to give. To give. God is pleased to freely give good things to his children. As a dad, sometimes I wish I were a billionaire so that I could give things to my children. God doesn't have to wish he were a billionaire. God owns a thousand cattle on a thousand hills. All things are his. Things on earth and things in heaven. And it is his good pleasure to give to his children. He delights in mercy. His loving kindness endures. You know, the Proverbs warn us about the stingy man. You remember the stingy man, and we are warned, do not eat the bread of a stingy man. Eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. You see, he's, he's buttering you up with food. He's fattening you up for the slaughter, as it were. Beloved, your father is not a stingy man. His heart is with you. He does not begrudge you. He does not resent you. He is not bothered by you. He is ready to receive you. In fact, he commands you to ask him. It is his good pleasure, says Jesus, to give you good things. Here is a third reason. You ought not fear God because he has an everlasting inheritance for you. An everlasting inheritance. Compare that to the things which threaten you here on earth. They're all temporary. Even the worst of them will come to an end. But you have been promised an everlasting inheritance, and Jesus here calls it the kingdom. It is God's good pleasure to give the kingdom to his sheep. Speaking of this day, Jesus is speaking of that day of eternal rewards. And here, consider this exchange rate. We do earthly service, and God returns to us eternal heavenly rewards. We merely do minor things like give a cup of cold water, and he gives us treasures in heaven. And speaking of this day, the Lord Jesus said, The king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. In this promise, Jesus assures you that the future hope of the heavenly kingdom should be sufficient to drive away those fears. Now, Jesus' words of assurance assume something that I am telling you, you must believe here and now. Jesus assumes that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. In other words, Jesus is saying that which comes hereafter is of greater and more significance than that which is here. And if you believe those words, then you could be comforted by Christ's words here. It should drive away those feelings of fear. And know that whatever you may endure here and now, it is but a moment. And it's not even worth comparing to the glory which God has in store for you. What perishable thing might you risk or lack during this momentary life? What earthly thing? might destroy you such that you will lose your soul. 
What did the Lord Jesus say? Do not fear him who can kill the body and do nothing more. Rather, fear him who can kill both the body and the soul. Well, we've already said that if we fear God in the sense of a child to a father, we need not fear his condemnation. What can you lose in your life under the sun that God cannot amply resupply in heaven? Beloved, we have seen in this passage that the Lord Jesus prohibits sinful fear. But he softens that prohibition by speaking to you as a good shepherd to his precious little flock. He reminds you that you have a heavenly father who has himself a good will towards you and who delights to give you everlasting heavenly rewards. How do we banish our fears? How do we cease from this sinful fearing of which Jesus prohibits? Well, we begin by first of all hearing him. Hearing his words, trusting him and believing his promises and obeying his commands. Let us pray. Almighty God, O Lord, you know our hearts. You know, O Lord, our weaknesses. But Father, you have shown us in your word that we have every reason to discard our fears. Help us, give us the grace to do that, O Lord. Forgive us for where we have fallen short. Help us not to be anxious or concerned, but rather let us set our mind to things above. Let us trust you. Let us entrust ourselves to you. And we ask, O oh God, though we know you will do it even if we don't ask, we ask you to keep your promises according to Christ's merits and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.